Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossin. And today's episode is 99 Luftballons, or in English, 99 Red Balloons, part one, where we discuss intra-aortic balloon pumps with special guest, Dr. Ivan Rapchuk. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Now, many of you may already know Dr. Rapchuk from episodes 14 and 15 in season one of our podcast, where we shared a really interesting discussion about cardiopulmonary bypass. If you haven't had a chance to listen, be sure to make time because they're great episodes that cover a lot of worthwhile content. Dr. Rapchuk is a cardiac anaesthetist who works both publicly at the Prince Charles Hospital and privately with Northside Anesthesia. He directs both the pre-anesthetic clinic and the acute pain service at the Prince Charles, very busy, as well as fulfilling the role of chair of the statewide anesthesia and perioperative care clinical network, otherwise known as SWAPNET. But of greatest importance, Ivan coaches the Queensland State Ice Hockey team and is heavily committed to making ice hockey the most widely popular and single most viewed sport in Australia. <laughs> Good on you. That's a great, great to aim high. Ivan, thanks for joining us on Deep Breaths. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, very happy to support the excellent work that you both do in the production of this podcast. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. So exam questions about intra-aortic balloon pumps seem to feature a lot in the final exam MCQ papers. And these devices are the most widely used circulatory assist devices in critically ill patients with cardiac disease. So let's break it down for some easy study. How does counterpulsation actually work? Well, the reason we insert balloon pumps is uh, ultimately to improve cardiac function. The goals of treatment are to improve ventricular performance by increasing myocardial oxygen supply and decreasing myocardial oxygen demand. The functional part of an intraaortic balloon pump is a long sausage-shaped balloon that inflates in diastole and deflates in systole. The principles behind this are that balloon inflation results in volume displacement of blood both proximally and distally to the balloon. The proximal displacement of blood generally leads to an increase in coronary blood flow, which will improve oxygenation of the heart muscle. Mm. Distal displacement of the blood will assist in improving cardiac output by augmenting the Windcastle effect of the aorta and improves cardiac output to not only the heart, but the kidneys and the other splanchnic organs. Of course. So what do we see when we, uh, when we look at the balloon pump in terms of actual cardiac physiology when a patient has a balloon pump in? Well, in the proximal aorta, we see a decrease in systolic pressure and an increase in diastolic pressure. In the left ventricle, we see a decrease in the systolic pressure, a decrease in the end diastolic pressure, and a decrease in the muscle wall tension. We generally see an increase in the coronary blood flow although it's not always the case, but the vast majority of time. And in the heart overall, we see a decrease in afterload, a decrease in preload, 
and a final increase in cardiac output. Mm. They all sound like pretty good things, depending on one's circumstances. <laughs> um, so, look, we've mainly just discussed the effect on the left heart, but balloon pumps can also have a favourable effect on right ventricular performance. Is that correct? Yeah, potentially, yes. Although this is mainly achieved through the balloon pump's enhancement of LV performance. Okay. You definitely see an accentuation of right ventricular myocardial blood flow. And by unloading the left ventricle and causing a reduction in left atrial and pulmonary vascular pressures, you see a reduction in right ventricular afterload, which of course is good for the RV. Excellent. So let's unpack the physiology a little more. Now, Ivan, can you walk us through exactly what happens during a cycle of balloon inflation and deflation? Sure. Let's start with balloon inflation. Cool. The balloon inflates with the onset of diastole and with the closure of the aortic valve. Now, this is called the timing of the balloon. This is a bit different to the trigger for inflation. So timing is when the balloon actually inflates. Okay. The trigger is what makes it inflate. Okay. So okay. ideally, we want the balloon to inflate at the dichrotic notch of the pressure trace, okay. just as the aortic valve closes. However, the balloon is triggered to do this by the electrical activity of the heart at the end of the T wave on the ECG. Ah. The reason for this is that electrical activity precedes mechanical events by a few milliseconds, and therefore it allows better timing of the mechanical balloon with the mechanical aortic valve closure. Okay. So balloon inflation causes retrograde displacement of blood within the aorta against a closed aortic valve, and this increases the arterial diastolic pressure. The way in which increased diastolic pressure translates to improved coronary perfusion is through the diastolic pressure time index, or DPTI. The pressure time index can roughly be defined as the time spent in diastole at a specific pressure and we calculate the DPTI with the equation of mean diastolic filling pressure multiplied by diastolic filling time multiplied by heart rate. By increasing the diastolic pressure within the aorta and therefore increasing the pressure difference between the proximal aorta and the left ventricle, we increase the mean diastolic filling pressure and thus the DPTI, which will then translate to an increase in coronary blood flow and myocardial oxygen supply. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this increase in diastolic pressure within the aorta is called diastolic augmentation. And the increase in diastolic pressure ideally results in a diastolic pressure that exceeds the patient's systolic pressure. Oh, that's really interesting. So if you go back to the old Hagen-Poiseuille principle, where flow through a tube is directly proportional to the pressure difference across it, and power to the fourth of the radius, while being inversely proportional to the length of the tube and the viscosity, in patients with severe coronary artery disease, they have little or no coronary artery autoregulation. So coronary artery dilation does not occur. Mm. Blood flow is directly related to the diastolic perfusion pressure. So the IABP should, in theory, improve coronary blood flow in these patients. That's interesting. Okay. All right. I love it that you've brought us back to equations. I'm going to really... I love equations. Yeah. <laughs> How can we you all. be an anaesthetist and not love Hagen Poiseuille? That's exactly right. It's like the primary is just coming flooding back to me, sort of. Um, so look, for those interested, we've linked some really great resources in our episode description that include graphic representations and figures, which illustrates and enhances everything we're planning to talk about today. So be sure to have a look because it'll really help understand the concepts. So we've talked about balloon inflation, but I suppose for every inflation, there must be a deflation. Uh, I don't know whether it's a Newton. I don't know. Um, 
Um, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, balloon deflation, look, the balloon deflates at the onset, onset of ventricular systole. This causes a decrease in the aortic diastolic pressure, and as a result of this, it causes decreased afterload. Mm. So it's through this mechanism that we see a reduction in myocardial oxygen demand because we're reducing the pressure against which the LV must contract and expel blood into the aorta. Makes sense. So the reason that this works is that the deflation of the balloon causes a sudden decrease in the aortic fluid volume, and with that sudden volume decrease, the walls of the aorta also relax or recoil slightly, and they exert less pressure on the blood remaining in the aorta. Mm, okay. So put in another way, oxygen consumption is related to ventricular workload, and is a major determinant of ventricular workload. We have to remember the area under the LV systolic pressure curve. Mm. Remember way back to our part one exam study again, plotting out the old LV ventricular pressure on the y-axis and the time on the x-axis, it gives us the LV pressure curve. The area under the curve, when the left ventricle is in systole, is called the tension time index, or TTI. And this is directly related to myocardial oxygen consumption. We can calculate the TTI with the equation of the mean LV ejection pressure multiplied by systolic ejection time multiplied by heart rate. Basically, the more time the LV spends struggling against the aortic pressure, the more oxygen it's going to consume. Mm. Now, when we reduce the aortic end diastolic pressure with balloon deflation, the pressure the ventricle must generate to overcome the aortic pressure so that the aortic valve opens and blood is ejected is far less. And it's this reduction in the amount of time the LV spends in isovolumetric contraction that causes the reduction in myocardial oxygen demand. And what we see on the LV pressure time curve is that there's a downward shift in the curve. And this shift reduces the area under curve, also known as the tension time index, and myocardial workload, and thus oxygen consumption, is decreased. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, that's interesting because I was thinking when the balloon deflates, I was like, oh, but it's just the same as having nothing, you know, having nothing there. But it's actually the activity of the balloon deflating itself displaces the fluid kind of south, for the blood further south, for want of a better word. And then the relaxation of the artery kind of reduces the total pressure. Is yeah, that right? The even more, yeah. reduces it even more so that yeah. it's almost, I imagine it as a bit of a vacuum into which the LV can now contract, yeah. which has yeah. that, that afterload yeah. is far less than it would have been before. Yeah. Mm. And so the aorta is quite elastic, but is that actually relaxes rather than kind of contracts to fill the space is that actually yeah initially okay. because of the balloon yeah. deflation yeah over the next few seconds it would contract like, again contract more. but okay. then we started a new cycle yeah okay and, uh, All right. yeah. that's interesting so just to be sure that i've got things squared away in my head in summary balloon inflation causes an increase in myocardial oxygen supply and balloon deflation results in a decrease in myocardial oxygen demand have i got things Right there? 100%. Awesome. And um, all cardiac syndromes are going to benefit from this. Increased supply, decreased demand. It's all Perfect. good. Perfect. Okay. So now that we understand the physiology of how the device actually works, can we talk about how it actually functions? So how do balloon pumps actually work and how can we be sure that they're able to time the inflation and the deflation correctly? Because I imagine if that doesn't work, it doesn't it's go very yeah. Bad things happen. <laughs> yeah. So that, there's two components to an intra-aortic balloon pump. So you've got a double lumen catheter, somewhere between 7.5 and 9.5 French, and it has a balloon attached at the distal end. Now this balloon can be anywhere between 25 and 50 mils in size, 
and it's chosen based on the patient's height. And then you have a console with a pump that drives the balloon. So these devices are usually inserted in either a cath lab mm -hmm. or the ICU or the operating theater, and the insertion is pretty straightforward. Um, the balloon is placed percutaneously into the femoral artery through an introducer sheath. Uh, you can in insert it into other arteries like mm -hmm. the subclavian, the axillary, the brachial, the iliac arteries, but the femoral is by far the most common. In addition, if there's an open chest, the device can be inserted directly in transthoracically or translumbarly if you have an open belly as well. The balloon catheter is then advanced, usually under fluoroscopic guidance, into the descending aorta until the tip's about two to three centimeters distal to the origin of the left subclavian artery. This should be about the level of the carina, or carina. Sorry, I forgot what country I'm in. <laughs> um, intraoperatively, we, uh, we confirm the position with the toe. Okay. Now, I mentioned before it's two lumens in this double lumen catheter. So the outer lumen is for delivery of gas to the balloon. Mm -hmm. The inner lumen is used for monitoring arterial pressure. Okay. Now, the gas we use for the balloon is helium. We do this because it's got a low density, so it facilitates little turbulent flow and there's rapid transfer of gas from the console to the balloon. You can imagine the gas having to be moved in and out of the balloon often at heart rates of 110 to 130. Mm, yeah, that's rapid. Yeah, so you need a very, you need laminar flow that the low density helium will facilitate. Nice. The other reason is that helium is pretty easily absorbed into the bloodstream in the rare but can occur event of balloon rupture. So it's pretty benign if it was to occur mm, to the patient. Fair enough. So once the balloon's in place, the console's programmed to identify a trigger for the balloon inflation and deflation. And most commonly, we use the ECG to trigger the balloon. Okay. Although, if you don't have an ECG, you can use aortic pressure. Okay. Um, however, as I said before, remember that electrical triggers are better. So they precede mechanical events in the heart by a few milliseconds. Mm. So they allow a better timing of the mechanical events of the balloon with the mechanical events of the heart. Nice. So inflation occurs at the onset of diastole, which corresponds to the middle of the T wave. Deflation occurs with the onset of systole, which corresponds to the peak of the R wave in the QRS. In the event of poor ECG quality, you can sometimes have electrical interference, you can mm -hmm. have cardiac dysrhythmias, there can be erratic inflation and deflation of the balloon. And in this instance, we do use the arterial pressure waveform instead of the ECG. Fair enough. Okay. In relation to the arterial pressure waveform, inflation at the onset of diastole will occur right after closure of the aortic valve, which corresponds to the dichrotic notch. And deflation will occur at the onset of systole immediately before opening the aortic valve, and that'll correspond to a point just before upstroke on the arterial pressure waveform. So let me interject with a quick question, Ivan. How big is the balloon when it's inflated? Well, the balloon, there's different sizes, but uh, depends upon the height of the patient, as mentioned before. And, yeah. But the volume is generally between 25 and 50 mils. Okay. In the largest balloons, they can be 60 mils. Okay. It's based, obviously, on height. The taller people, ha people have a bigger uh, balloon volume. Mm. And even in terms of size, when the balloon is fully inflated, it shouldn't be larger than about 80 to 90 percent the diameter of the descending thoracic mm. aorta. Okay, mm. cool. And, and most of them are about 20 or 30 centimeters long as well. Um, and this depends upon size of the balloon, but you can imagine they want to be just distal to the subclavian, mm. but you don't want them to overlap the splanchnic arteries or the renal arteries. Yeah. Mm. Oh gosh, yes, that could end badly. It'd be <laughs> suboptimal. 
So, look, I've just shown a bit of a time check and uh, we're enjoying this, but we've run out of time for this episode. Uh, we will bring you back again very shortly for a second episode and I look forward to hearing more about intra-aortic balloon pumps. Can't wait. Count me in. Count you in. I love it. You're Excellent. captive audience now. Excellent. Well, it's been an intense but interesting discussion this week on deep breaths. As always, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please let us know. Be sure to recommend us to your colleagues. You can find us on your usual podcast platform. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.